A few days ago in the morning, I responded to a question about dependent origination. And following that, there were quite a few requests for a talk. So that's what we're doing tonight. (laughs) I'd like to start with just offering what the Buddha's words were this teaching. With ignorance as condition, mental formations come to be. With mental formation as condition, consciousness comes to be. With consciousness as condition, materiality, mentality comes to be, nama rupa comes to be. With nama rupa as condition, the six sense bases. With the sense bases as condition, contact. With contact as condition, feeling. With feeling as condition, craving. With craving as condition, clinging with clinging as condition becoming, with becoming as condition birth, with birth as condition aging and death and the entire mass of suffering comes to be. As I said the other morning, this description of this this teaching. The Buddha described it as a, a teaching on how suffering comes to be. It's a description of how suffering comes to be. And this teaching, as I said the other morning, is not just as simple as understanding causality as we understand it in the world. Because what it really points to is the conditionality in our own minds that leads to the arising of suffering. So it is really a pointing to an internal process, the conditions internally that lead to suffering. It's a complex teaching in many ways. I think one of us referred the other day to an interchange between Ananda and the Buddha. And I'll read this from the the texts. Ananda came to the Buddha and said, it is wonderful, it is marvelous how profound this dependent origination is and how profound it appears. And yet it appears to me as clear as clear. And the Buddha's response is, do not say that, Ananda, do not say that. This dependent origination is profound and appears profound. It is through not understanding, not penetrating this doctrine, that this generation has become like a tangled ball of string, covered as with a blight, tangled like with, tangled with like coarse grass, unable to pass beyond states of woe. unable to pass beyond suffering. 
And so he was pointing out to Ananda that what he thought was clear as clear about dependent origination, that he wasn't quite really penetrating the depth of the teaching. It can seem clear. Conditionality can seem clear. Cause cause and effect can seem clear. And yet what he's pointing to is subtle. I think of this teaching as an elaboration on the second noble truth. The second noble truth with the arising of craving is the arising of suffering. Dependent origination goes into more detail on how that happens. I found it useful in my own practice, not simply a theoretical teaching. And so that's, I hope to be able to convey some of how I found it useful. My understanding is that it is a description of how suffering comes to be. It's not a practice. Many of the teachings that he offered were practices about how to look at our experience, but this is more a description and yet a very um, um, penetrating description that helps us to see clearly. And so while not a practice in itself, to me at least, it's not a practice in and of itself, it is a teaching that helps us to practice. I think there are a couple of key pieces that for me have been really useful to reflect on about this teaching, just at the, in the broad brush way. And one of those pieces is that this, uh, this description, this teaching, is about how suffering arises for human beings. The conditioned nature of suffering for human beings. And so this itself is a is it useful for us to recognize that suffering is conditioned and it is human. Being born in this human realm, we are caught in this process and until we see through it, we will continue to struggle. The other key piece of this teaching, as I just mentioned, is that the, the suffering, the arising of suffering, is, arises in dependence on processes within our own hearts and minds. And so this is, it's good news because it means that there is the possibility for releasing, shifting, changing this, changing, having the conditions shift and change. That given that suffering is conditioned, it can be, the conditions, if the conditions are changed, which just hearing this teaching 
is a condition that leads to something, potentially something different happening. And so when the conditions change, there can be a different unfolding. Experience does not have to follow in this very habitual way of leading to suffering. Really, I think, too, another thing that is, uh, has been useful for me, a way to think about d- dependent origination, is that it essentially points to ways that our mind habitually works. But it is not a description of the way our minds necessarily work. It is possible to change our minds. key conditions that lead to this change because it's all conditions. Key conditions. One of the key conditions is hearing the Dharma. And for some of us, hearing the Dharma lands in a way such that we are inspired to engage. It doesn't land that way for everybody. It has landed that way for all of you. So here you are, cultivating mindfulness and wisdom, conditions which alter the habitual processes that usually lead us to suffering. Another thing I, I, um, I think about is this description of dependent origination as a description of how suffering comes to be, it's kind of a description of the tangle that we get caught in. It describes this tangle. And so understanding something about how our minds get tangled helps the untangling. So this teaching on dependent origination, as I um, stated it earlier, I'll just say the links again one more time. I won't repeat it in the way that I did. I'll just name the links. Ignorance, mental formations, ignorance conditions consciousness, ignorance conditions mental formations, conditions consciousness, conditions mentality, materiality, conditions the sense, ba- the sense bases, conditions contact, conditions feeling, conditions craving, conditions clinging, conditions becoming, conditions birth, conditions old age and death, conditions the entire mass of suffering. And there's an understanding, although it's not so explicit in the teachings on dependent origination so much. But elsewhere in the teachings, the Buddha points to how suffering conditions ignorance much of the time. And so this dependent, this chain of dependent origination becomes a wheel or a cycle with the suffering that arises often, but not necessarily, often conditioning 
more ignorance, which leads us back through this chain again. This teaching on dependent origination is kind of got multiple ways we can look at it in one way and it's and both of these are different ways we can look at it um, these ways are supported by um, what's in the texts what's in the suttas and one of the ways that we can look at this dependent origination is a description of how suffering comes to be over a lifetime or over multiple lifetimes even that conditions from the past ignorance from our past mental formations from our past are kind of feeding into how we are now and in the future and creating suffering. Things from our distant past can be coming into our present and creating suffering now or maybe creating suffering in the future. And so there's a a kind of a large time frame on which this teaching operates. It even is understood as operating over multiple lifetimes Conditions from previous lives may be arising. Um, uh, The conditions from previous lives may be conditioning things in this life that we are suffering in connection with. What we do in this life may condition suffering in a future life. And so it is understood on this like vast time frame, this teaching as a covering how we are propelled through the cycle of suffering throughout our life, our, our, our life here, and also through multiple lives. It also is understood in the texts as being a description of how suffering arises right in this moment. The conditions in this moment that lead to suffering and the conditions that may lead. Uh, The the teaching also points to how we can uh, release that suffering in this moment. And so this perspective of it describing the arising of suffering moment to moment in our experience, this is the one that I have more uh, direct experience with. I don't have direct experience with lifetime to lifetime understanding around this teaching, uh, direct experience with that. I have some sense of how um, in this life things that happened long ago um, from my childhood have played into how I suffer here and now. But at the same time what I see is that that play between the past and the present happens now through the arising of a thought of the past right now. And so this kind of moment-to-moment arising of this conditionality is really where I'd like to, to focus this talk tonight. And so I'm going to start this description. I'm going to go through all 12 of these. Hopefully we'll get through this. Um, I'm going to start this not at the traditional beginning at ignorance. Because in my own experience and understanding, these first four links were some of the most um, challenging 
to understand. And so what I'd like to start tonight is where it's easier to understand, which is a lot of what we've actually talked about already. So I'll go through some of these links fairly quickly. So if we start with, you know, given that we have, we're living, we are alive. We have a body and we're alive. We have consciousness and this physical being, mind and body. Because of that, we've got these sense bases. And with these sense bases as condition, and because we're conscious, we experience contact with these sense bases. So this is the six sense bases, conditions, contact. We experience contact with the eye. There's contact through, through, through form and there's the, the contact and there's sight. With the ear, there's contact and there's hearing. With the nose, contact and smelling. So these six sense spaces. Eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch sense and the sense space of the mind. And so with all of our sense spaces, there's this contact. We're alive and we experience contact. With contact as condition, there is feeling, the feeling tone. We've talked a lot about feeling tone. So every sense contact, every sense impression on the five physical senses and in our mind includes this feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. With this feeling tone as condition, we've talked a lot about that, so I'm just gonna kind of keep going here. With this feeling tone as condition, Our habitual response to feeling is when there's pleasant feeling, we like it, we want more of it. When there's unpleasant feeling, we don't like it, we wanna push it away. And so this, we've also talked about a lot, how feeling tends to lead to craving, habitually leads to craving. It leads to craving, I'm just gonna point back to one of the early links that we didn't talk about. Feeling will lead to craving when there's ignorance in the mind, that very first link. When there is not understanding how suffering comes to be. And so that is kind of what we we sometimes call this teaching dependent co-arising. And so with ignorance kind of at, at the head of our uh, process, when ignorance is arising, feeling leads to craving. When ignorance is arising, feeling and craving kind of come together. There's this co-arising with ignorance, feeling and craving arise together. But this is very habitual. It's very familiar. We're like this kind of automaton wanting to maximize pleasant, minimize unpleasant, usually missing the neutral altogether. And so we habitually, so this is craving. Feeling leads to craving. This is something, you've all seen this. So this is not so mysterious, this part. We've got our sense bases, there's contact, there's feeling. Often it leads to craving. 
with craving as condition clinging. And so this is, um, this is an intensification in my sense that clinging is really an intensification of craving. The, the craving is kind of like the leaning towards the movement towards something and the clinging is the latching onto it. Bhikkhu Bodhi had a great uh, analogy. He said, the craving is like a thief when they are reaching out to get something. That's the craving. And the clinging is when they've picked it up to take it. That's that flavor of clinging. Once something is clung to, and the clinging is, we often feel the, the crave, for me at least experientially, and so this is something that's useful to, to begin to get familiar with. The experiential quality of these links, of, of each of these things. We, we know, I think we know feeling, that quality of pleasant, unpleasant. Craving to me has a quality of like leaning, leaning towards. Clinging has a quality of kind of squeezing, or a constriction. There's a, there's a kind of the, the body, it almost feels physical, the body almost feels like it, it squeezes around an idea or it literally squeezes to pick something up. But it's, it, there's a feeling in there, the clinging has that kind of quality of holding, contraction. Once we have clung to something, once there's this, oh, this kind of clinging, then the next link in the chain is becoming. And this one we've talked about just a little bit. Becoming is, is in the realm of identification, the, you know, kind of the heading towards an identity. Once an experience is clung to, our whole system seems to rally in the service of that clinging to um, have intentions and actions to follow through on that clinging. To produce or to control. So this, these intentions and actions that serve clinging this is becoming. Now this, this actually feels good. In my experience, that this quality of becoming is, it's kind of like this place in our, in our minds where we feel like we figured it out. I know how to keep this thing. I know how to navigate my life. I know how to do this. And so this, there's, it, there's a feeling like we're in control, like we figured it out. This is this becoming. Becoming feels good. So it's, it's kind of this heading in the direction. We haven't quite landed in a way, I think, of becoming and birth. Birth in this case, in this understanding of the moment-to-moment um, teaching of dependent origination. Birth... Um, refers to birth into an identity. Taking, you know, really, this is who I am. 
I am this person. So it's a kind of a, it's a solidification of that, of that becoming. And so in, in this similar way where craving and clinging are on a gradation, I see becoming in birth or we're becoming an identity as being kind of uh, a gradation from one to the other. We're, we're reaching towards something we think we've got it figured out and then we land in the birth. Sometimes the birth can feel like, yeah, really got it in control, but with birth comes the kind of recognition that, oh, now I have to really like make sure I stay here. And this is that um, kind of the, the, the Vipari Namaduka. Sometimes we can take birth into something unpleasant. We definitely can take birth into unpleasant identities. I've, I got really good at that with self-hatred, seeing that process. But sometimes we, and, and it's kind of amazing to think that we actually have these intentions that rally in the service of self-hatred, but we do. We can see this. We can kind of see that there's a, a wanting to have that. It's, it, we, it, we think it serves us in some way. And so with this birth, there will either be suffering in the nature of the birth, you know, in my experience of taking birth into self-hatred, it was just unpleasant in and of itself, that birth was unpleasant. But even if we take birth into something that we think is like a good identity, then in that moment of taking birth, there's this kind of recognition of, whoa, this is not very stable. Some piece of us understands it's not very stable and that it is destined to fall apart. This is the old age and death. And so once we take birth, we, it in, we inevitably will suffer, either through the, 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 the nature of the identity itself as being a painful identity or through the understanding that this identity, even if it's a great one, it's not gonna last. So an, uh, kind of an example here to make it a little more clear. So one uh, kind of thing that's been coming up for a lot of you is this notion of um, kind of being a good practitioner you know, this, this, this idea. So an idea of being, maybe being a good yogi or being a good practitioner arises in the mind. This is contact. This is a contact with the sense base of the mind, the idea of being a good yogi. The feeling of that, the feeling of that, it's like an idea or a fantasy in the mind. The feeling of being a good yogi in the mind, that feels pretty good, so pleasant experience. Based on that pleasant experience, there's kind of this, this wish, this, this uh, desire, this movement towards wanting to make that a reality, wanting to follow through, <laughs> to, to have that fantasy or that idea become a reality. That's the craving. And then with that comes these... Um, um, a, a, the, the clinging, the intensification of that would be kind of the fixed idea or the belief that in order to be happy, in order to be okay, 
I need to be this good yogi. There's this um, a kind of a belief that it's necessary. I will not be happy unless I, I get this, unless I can, can be this good practitioner. Whatever this idea is we have in our mind about what a good practitioner is. And then the becoming, so from that clinging, that kind of that sense of the necessity of, of doing that, comes these intentions and actions to make it happen. So intentions rally in the service of that idea, that necessity, that thing that we think is a necessity. And so we start engaging in behaviors. We start engaging in maybe... Um, sitting long hours or walking really slowly or um, whatever we think being a good yogi is. Let's say for simplicity's sake that um, these activities that you've engaged in um, actually have you seeing some things and, and create the sense of, oh, I am a good yogi. Birth. We, we, we take birth in that. I am a good yogi. So we've, we have this distinct feeling of, of having accomplished or, or created these, this, um, what, we, what we wanted in order to be happy. And so this creates the sense of self, this birth into this identity, and augments this distinction between self and others. So we may also, in this sense of being a good yogi, be kind of checking everybody else out as to whether they're like good yogis or not, and whether we're the best yogi. And yet, so even if this lasts for some time, having taken birth into this sense of being a good yogi, at some point, at some point, something's going to happen. And I think many of you have, have reported, at least in my meetings, many of you have reported this kind of thing where something happens. Suddenly it's like, we don't seem to be able to stay with our breath as long as we want to. Something is shifted. And there's a kind of a crash. It's like we have experienced based on what our idea of being a good yogi is, and this is, I think, a lot of what, where the suffering comes, is the idea of what a good yogi is. We're not measuring up to that anymore. And so we're not measuring up to our own sense of what that is, and then we suffer. Something has happened where, it's, I went through this over and over again. You know, taking a step and feeling, oh, I can be, I can be right with that step, and step and right with that step and then suddenly the mind wanders and it's like within seconds it's good yogi bad yogi good yogi bad yogi so much pain so much suffering around this so the cycle the cycle of this chain. There's some ways in which it reinforces itself. One of the ways it reinforces itself has to do with 
the feeling tone associated with some of these links. And so wanting, for instance, when we actually touch into the experience of wanting, that feeling of leaning that I talked about, when we notice that feeling too, that is a mental formation, craving is a mental formation, it has a feeling tone. And it generally feels unpleasant when we actually touch into it. We often miss that unpleasantness because we are thinking about what we're going to get. And so we're not really clearly seeing the unpleasantness of the wanting in the, in the mo- direct moment's experience. And so this wanting is unpleasant. And then when we um, get what we want, when we cling and we kind of move into becoming, that's pleasant. There's, a, there's something pleasant. There's the, ple- there's the pleasantness of the having, of the thing that we want. There's the pleasantness of the feeling of control, that becoming. There's also the pleasantness of the unpleasant wanting going away. And that's actually a really powerful driver. That the, the, the wanting, that quality of that leaning and that unpleasantness of wanting, the feeling of offness around the wanting, that goes away for a moment when we get something that we want. And yet, that getting the thing that we want, it's not very reliable. It kind of falls apart relatively quickly. And so in that falling apart, our minds kind of go something like, well, the last time I felt pretty good was when I got something I wanted. So what can I want in order to get it so that I can feel good again? This perpetuates this cycle. Basically, wanting to want in order to get rid of the wanting. That's actually what's going on there. We want to want in order that we feel like the, the wanting go away. So that's the kind of easy part of the chain in a way. The, the, the part that maybe we have a little bit of experience with in our, um, in our practice so far. We actually have experience with this other part too at the beginning of the link. I'll come to the beginning here and... and Uh, review these first parts of the chain. So with suffering, once suffering has arisen, as I said earlier, that suffering tends to condition ignorance. The definition of ignorance in the texts is not knowing about suffering, not knowing about the arising of suffering, not knowing about the cessation of suffering, not knowing about the way leading to the cessation of suffering. This is called ignorance. And so ignorance here is not ignorance about like how to drive a car or how to cook a zucchini, but it's ignorance about this process of suffering. And so the Buddha said that when, we, when suffering happens, it leads to either bewilderment, confusion, more ignorance, or in certain situations, it leads to search. 
And this is said to be what happened for him when he met suffering. Uh, It's said that uh, he had the thought, does anyone know a way or two out of this suffering? And so this is the beginning of search, this, this searching for a way out of suffering. And if we hear some teachings and gain some faith in the teachings, this puts us onto the process that leads us in the same kind of conditioned nature, the process that leads us to freedom. That suffering can also lead to faith when it's met with, when suffering kind of comes into contact with some curiosity and search and hearing a teaching. And this is pointing in the direction of transcendent dependent origination towards freedom. But very often, suffering leads right back to ignorance because we don't understand suffering. We think we need to kind of adjust the world to deal with suffering. We have to get rid of what we, uh, what's unpleasant. We have to get what, what's pleasant. This is just the fundamental misunderstanding. And this is a driver of this, of this chain. And so ignorance suffering not being understood. This is why mindfulness is so powerful with our practice. Because when mindfulness is present, it has the capacity to see into the suffering in a new way. So ignorance generally thinks having what we want will lead to happiness, following that kind of belief. And we've seen this doesn't go very far to lead to a deeper kind of happiness. It can lead to a certain kind of happiness, that happiness of sense pleasure, the happiness of getting what we want. It is a kind of happiness. The Buddha pointed to it as a, as a kind of happiness, but he also said it is the pretty much the least kind of happiness that's possible for us as human beings. But in this ignorance, caught in this ignorance, we think that kind of happiness is as good as it gets. And so we stay stuck on that wheel. And so ignorance conditions what we do with our, with our minds. This ignorance about uh, not understanding suffering Based on not understanding suffering, we make choices. We decide how we're going to engage. We tend to go for what we want, get rid of what we don't want. We think this kind of happiness is good as it gets. That's how we organize our lives. And this organization is mental formations. So not understanding suffering, we choose things, we decide things, we act based on conditioned habits, patterns. And due to ignorance, we usually take the most obvious move to get rid of unpleasant sensations and to have pleasant sensations. We go for the, the quick, 
fix, a quick hit. And this is actually, while we think we're making ourselves happy, this is actually digging us deeper into this cycle because we're reinforcing this pattern of, I got something that's pleasant, that felt good, oh, it goes away, well, find something else to want. It just reinforces that, this ignorance reinforces that. And so with ignorance as conditioned, mental formations come to be. I want to talk a little bit about this link in, not just internally, not just in our, our own minds, because the, um, the ignorance that we have in our minds around um, how happiness comes to be, what, what, you know, what, what we can do to make ourselves feel good, this is not simply what's happening in our own hearts and minds. You know, we, we learn from our families, our cultures. We're taught this same pattern. And so there's a way in which it's not only ignorance in our own hearts and minds, but it's kind of a collective ignorance that leads to collective mental formations around how we engage in the world. We can kind of think of um, culture as being shared mental formations, shared views, shares, shared ideas, shared beliefs. And we teach these to each other. And so our ignorance is not just our own. It's coming to us through conditioning through our families, through. Our, our fellow playmates on the playground, through what we see on media, we learn what to believe, what to think. And this This kind of ignorance and mental formation that comes through our culture is hard for us to see because it's shared with people around us. We, we, have, we share beliefs and values with people around us and, and we think that's what it is to be human. That's what it is to be a, that's what a good human being is, is what I've learned to be but it's just these views and opinions and beliefs that we've been shaped with. And so these mental formations, we have so many mental formations that we have absorbed through our culture. And we talked about some of these, um, the ones, the one, some of these that really create suffering not only for ourselves, but in our culture as a whole. Views, beliefs around race, around sexual orientation, around climate change. These views and beliefs are mental formations, shared 
mental formations and yet these 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 ideas it's i mean we think of in some ways we think of mental formations as just oh this is just something happening in my own mind but these things that happen in our own mind affect how we engage in the world how we meet each other care for each other hate each other hurt each other and so this is an important piece to begin to be curious about. These mental formations that are shaped. And so with mental formation is condition either mental formations that are coming from our own habits and patterns, these, these mental formations based in ignorance, some of them are our own, our own particular flavors. My own flavor of self-hatred, that was, that was my own. And some of them are more cultural or collective mental formations. And with these mental formations as condition, we tend to, so the next, the next link is, with mental formations as condition, consciousness comes to be. My understanding of this is that with this, these views, these ideas, these beliefs, with the arising of a particular state of mind that's a mental formation, such as anger, for instance, that shapes what consciousness becomes aware of. We seem to think of ourselves as being these like cameras and microphones just picking up everything that's out there. But that's not quite the way our minds work. Because based on our views, based on our whatever our mind state is, based on even something as simple as an agenda, our uh, consciousness, th th that shapes our consciousness to select some things out of the vast uh, incoming data and not select other things. There's a couple of psychological terms here. One, selective attention, that when we have a focus on something, have an agenda to do something, then our, our minds tend to focus down on that and we will not see things that are not relevant to that agenda. Really not see them. I was watching a show on perception. It was a kind of a, I think it was on PBS, a, a, a television show about how the brain works and perception. And they did a lot of these kind of experiments of, uh, helping you to see these things in your own mind. And there was one where they said, okay, watch this magic trick. They're going to do a magic trick and you need to figure out uh, how the keys get out of the cup. You know, he put some keys in the cup and then later the keys were gone or something. It was a pretty simple kind of magic trick. And I watched really closely. I was focused on that magic trick, trying to see what he did. And maybe, maybe I saw, I don't, I'm not sure, really, 
that, that I saw what it was, but I was really focused in on that magic trick. So that was the agenda. See how that magic trick works. And then they said, okay, did you figure that out? And then they showed us how it worked. And then they said, and did you see the guy in the giant bunny suit that walked by? I had not seen the guy in the giant bunny suit. It was like really obvious. That selective attention had my had consciousness seeing some things and not seeing other things. This is important to recognize that we are not seeing everything that's out there. And then there's another term, confirmation bias, which has been in the in the the news a lot lately, that we tend to, given particular views, opinions, beliefs, given particular um, perspectives, we tend to, this is well studied psychologically, we tend to pick things out of the environment that confirm those beliefs and not see things that disconfirm them. So this, these, are, this, these are ways that our minds function. Knowing that our minds do this can help us to, uh, to not assume we know more than we do. So with mental formation as condition, with beliefs, views, emotions, we see certain things, we don't see other things. Consciousness. And with consciousness as condition, what's shaping our, what, what is arising in our consciousness with these views and beliefs and ideas or emotions, that tends to shape the rest of our system, our mental and physical processes. And so just imagine the arising of anger, for instance, a mental formation shaping our consciousness. We're picking certain things out of the environment with that anger, not other things. And so there's this, this kind of, you know, the, the, the quality of mind, the consciousness is filtered kind of by this quality of anger. And so this, um, this tends to shape not only what we perceive, what we pull out of the environment, what we, what we know, what we perceive, what we feel, it shapes what we feel. When we're, when we're experiencing anger, we tend to orient towards things that kind of confirm that anger or reify that anger. At one point I was practicing walking meditation and um, I was experiencing aversion. I often experienced aversion doing walking meditation with other people in the room. And um, I was just noticing the aversion. I was just doing my back and forth walking. And, and um, at one point I turned around and somebody had put their shoes at the end of my walking path. And my mind just exploded with like aversion to these shoes. And this was very unpleasant. And so this was the anger shaping how the mind perceived the experience. If I'd been experiencing, you know, I can imagine there, 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 have been, there were times, a few times I experienced like love and, uh, and connection. If I'd turned around and see, seen the shoes in that situation, very different experience shaped. And so when something is, when mental formations are rising in the mind, it shapes our bodies, it shapes what we perceive, what we think, what we feel. 
And so here we are with a body and a mind. And there's contact. This is, we're back where we started. Contact. Only now we see that it's not just a simple, oh, there's a sight coming into the eye. It's already been filtered and chosen and pulled out based on views and ideas and opinions. This is another way the cycle tends to perpetuate itself. Because those views and ideas that shape our mind tend to have us orient towards receiving information that further shapes those same things. Those same things. So the cycle tends to reinforce itself. And yet it is not hopeless. Because this chain, it's a chain that describes conditions. It's not lockstep. It's not cause effect, cause effect, cause effect. It's, it's conditions. And if the conditions change, the whole cycle can shift. And the main conditions that help to change this cycle to move in a different direction, understanding, understanding suffering, that root point of the chain, the, the ignorance, shifting the conditions so that we understand suffering. Mindfulness and wisdom are really the tools that support a change of this pattern. The uh, teachings emphasize in various ways, there's a lot of teachings in the suttas that point to the... um, Mindfulness of feeling as a very powerful tool that kind of helps to shift the conditions of this unfolding. Feeling leads to craving, leads to clinging, leads to becoming, leads to birth, suffering. When we bring mindfulness to the feeling tone of experience, we have the opportunity to see that as an arising, to see the feeling, seeing the feeling itself, just the seeing of the feeling with mindfulness helps the mind to not necessarily do its automatic shift to craving. Sometimes just the awareness of feeling can short circuit that movement towards craving towards greed and aversion around pleasant and unpleasant. Clearly experiencing the feeling tone with mindfulness is bringing wisdom to feeling tone. It's bringing wisdom in there. And so that's often a place where this... um, there's an emphasis around 
kind of breaking this chain of dependent origination at this feeling craving link. And there definitely are um, a lot of instructions around feeling tone, looking at feeling tone, understand feeling tone in the suttas that really help us to orient towards this as a very crucial practice. And yet there are also teachings, one particular teaching that I I really have um, resonated with. It's, it's in the Majjhima Nikaya and it's um, Majjhima 9. It's called Right View. And in that text, it looks at, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't exactly um, talk about dependent origination, but it talks about every single link of dependent origination. And it points to how you can practice with that link so that there can be freedom. Any link, any place where we notice, any place where mindfulness can join, whether it's with craving or clinging or becoming or ignorance, The teaching says, around clinging, for example, it says, one can understand clinging, one can understand the arising of clinging, one can understand the ending of clinging and the way leading to the ending of clinging. And in that seeing, in that clear seeing, freedom will be right there. when I first learned about dependent origination, I thought I had to stop the experience at feeling and that that was the only way to come to an end of suffering. But this teaching just spoke right to my heart. It's like, wherever you wake up, if you're noticing anger, notice that. Freedom is possible right there through the seeing of how it arises, how it ends. Understanding, understanding it. This really is uprooting the ignorance that's coming along with that, that co-arising of ignorance with whatever's happening. When we're caught in this chain, this cycle, ignorance is arising. To me, this is the co-arising. It's like when ignorance is arising, the entire 12 links are picked up all at once. When ignorance arises, we are already suffering. And so the, the real medicine is seeing through that ignorance. And wherever we are, the mindfulness and wisdom can penetrate that. I had this really kind of shocking experience. I mentioned, I think, my self-hatred retreat at one point where I, I you know, was seeing self-hatred. It was a three-month retreat where self-hatred was really predominant and so I was looking at it a lot. Watched it from many different ways, many different perspectives. I had the belief that it was kind of like oh well, I guess this is my self-hatred retreat and enlightenment will have to wait. That's kind of what I was thinking. 
And yet I was pretty dedicated about looking at the, uh, the self-hatred. And one evening, in being right there, there, there'd been a lot of kind of freeing, freeing around the self-hatred that had happened to allow me to be able to, to meet it. And one evening I was watching, watching it arise, watching it arise, just seeing this like little weavings of self-hatred coming together and just noting it immediately. Oh, there it is. That's arising. It's unpleasant. Contact unpleasant. I was actually using that note. Contact unpleasant. As soon as I noticed this little flavor of self-hatred, contact unpleasant. And as the mind sat with that, at one point it saw so clearly, the mind saw that this was just an arising. It was just an arising, it was just a thought. And in an instant, that wisdom, it's just a thought, that whole pattern just like fell apart. Not completely. (laughs) But that moment was really powerful. It was like, it was like a tree was uprooted. But I still see just little wisps of that pattern every now and then. Just little wisps of it. But the belief is not there anymore. And so that, you know, that understanding, that that what was uprooted really there was the belief that it was me. And so that mindfulness and wisdom, whatever's arising, that was a moment that really changed my life. (laughs) That moment. And right in the midst of self-hatred, deep understanding deep understanding. And so truly, wherever you are, whatever you are meeting, that, that is where freedom is possible. And that to me is the good news of this teaching. We are not stuck with this cycle. Freedom is possible. Let's just sit for a moment. 